Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would always be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It is a joy, and I mean that sincerely, a joy for me to be here. I'd, um, I suggested maybe coming and preaching here to your rector, Father Andrew, about eight years ago. <laughs> and it took a pandemic and a sabbatical for Greg, Father Greg to call me and say, hey, why don't you come out? So um, I sure hope Andrew knows that I'm here. But let me, let me say a word about your rector. I know a lot of clergy in our tribe, the Anglican tribe. He is an exceptional leader. And he is, he is, he's actually one of my favorite people to talk to. And we have spent so much time on the phone, very informally. But I get people calling me all the time and saying, hey, I want to come out and talk. And they come out and talk. And they just go away with, you know, without ever really having engaged. But Andrew has always been prepared. He is one of the most humble, smart, but teachable young leaders I have ever run across. I, and I don't say that every time I go preach somewhere. Okay, that's, that's real. So you're very fortunate. And then, but you're double blessed here with Father Greg. Um, while Greg, uh, Father Greg, excuse me, I'm, I'm, these are personal friends of mine. So when we're out being personal friends, we don't call each other fathers. Okay, <laughs> just little inside baseball there. Um, but uh, I went out and interviewed him at the airport and I couldn't believe uh, the role and responsibility that he had. And then when the COVID hit and everything was going on at American, he read the book I'd written on the 23rd Psalm and he kept calling me, send me more, send me more, send me more. And he handed out dozens, not hundreds, to employees at the airport. I'm thankful uh, for him, thankful to him. And then the other thing that he, by the way, if you're counting minutes for sermons, none of this counts, okay? <laughs> this is all preliminary. I will, let, I will let you know when the sermon begins, okay? Uh, maybe this is why Father Andrew never had me out. Um, but not only am I the uh, leader of Leader Works, uh, which is helping leaders do their work, I lead tours to Israel and uh, other places of the faith. But primarily, going to Israel is kind of the bread and butter. It's the mother of all trips. And um, just by chance, um, the man that I, the brother in Christ that I've used as my guide for, Sam, what, 15 years uh, is joining us here, just passing through Dallas, Fort Worth. Sam, would you please stand up? This is Sam Macarios. He's the best. He's the best. His, his name, actually, Makarios, means lucky. And I always tell people here, if you're lucky enough to come with us to Israel, you will be lucky enough to have Sam as the guide. And people uh, love him. So I'm going to ask him to just hang out around here after the service if you have any questions. But now the sermon begins. <laughs> it is the feeding of the 5,000. And this is the most famous of all Jesus' miracles. And there's probably a couple reasons why. Uh, it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the only miracle that occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
In fact, it occurs twice with two different amount, num numbers of people, 4,000 and 5,000, in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've read the New Testament through, you've encountered this story five times. Another reason why it might be very popular is that because it's about bread. People love bread. And you're looking at me and you're saying, hey, that guy's been on a diet or two. I can tell. And I always break it around bread. I love bread. Bread is the most common basic food stuff of the ancient world. And here we had a story about people who had nothing and then who had plenty. Another reason why it might be popular is because it is reminiscent to the Jew, anyway, of Moses in the wilderness. Jesus in the wilderness, multiplying bread, Moses in the wilderness, the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. All these reasons give it a good standing in our mind. But I want to say to you that there is another, maybe hidden reason why this story, among all the others, is most famous. And I'll get to it toward the end of the message, but I want you to know that this story is essentially about a partnership that God has with his people, Jesus with his disciples, that is the most common partnership. It's the way God works. In fact, I just wrote a book on this called The Ordinary Ways of God, that God uses ordinary people as Jesus used ordinary you know, disciples, fishermen, to ex to to do extraordinary things. It's basically, a, the book is a commentary on the book of Ruth. But before we get into the details of why this partnership or how this partnership exists, let's go through the story and make sure we get all the details right. We begin, if you look in your, in your program, it, it begins uh, with the comment that um, the disciples had come back and reported in on everything that they did and everything that they taught. And if we go back, you don't have your Bibles with you, but if you did, you went back to verse 13, you would know exactly what they did and exactly what they taught. What they did was they did exorcisms and healing. They did miracles. The disciples themselves did miracles. And here's why this is important. Jesus has known these disciples as disciples in this point of this story for less than a year. And he sends them out untested, unproved, and they are out there basically on a test run as missionaries. Why? Well, because Jesus has been at his ministry for one year. Everything he's famous for having done, he's already done. He's, done, he's raised the dead. He's turned water to wine. He has walked on water. He has healed the sick. He has cast out the demons. He is, he is, he's done everything that you can imagine him doing. And yet, when he runs into Nazareth, it all grinds to a halt. There's incredible momentum behind the ministry of Jesus. But when Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, he runs into a wall. You know why? Because the people of Nazareth, they loved Jesus, but they loved more the idea that he was from Nazareth than they loved him. Local boy does good. That was the headline in the paper, and they loved that. 
In fact, they had so much love for their place and the new notoriety that Jesus brought it that Jesus could do, the Bible says, no miracle in Nazareth, his own hometown. No miracle. Because of their pride. And Jesus knows, as he knows even today, that pride and the work of God are mutually exclusive. God will work in a person's life to the point of pride. And when pride takes over, it says, I got this. No thanks. Good idea, God. I'm going to take it on my own. You can go do some. I've got it's all about me. And when that happened in Nazareth, the place shut down. But Jesus was undaunted. What he wanted to do, he continued to do. Same message, different messengers. Same message, different method. Send the disciples out two by two with the same message. And what was the message? What did, what did they teach? That people should repent. That's the second thing we learn here. Is they came back and they told Jesus everything they had done, the miracles, and then everything that they had taught. And what they had taught was that people should repent. It's sort of a, it's a jarring way to say it. Because when we think of repent, we don't think, we, we, we think it's, it's, a, it's a negative thing. That there's some preacher with a finger pointing at people and saying, repent. And we interpret that personally. Like, what, what, me? I have to change my life? I have to stop my sin? That's not what the disciples were talking about. What they were talking about is change your mind, change your thinking about God. This was the message of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change your thinking, and believe in the gospel. Specifically, what, is this, what did it mean for the people of the ancient world? It meant this. Previously, you had thought that life was all about obeying the law of Moses. No. Life is about walking holy with God. Previously, you had thought that God is out there and needs to be appeased by some kind of ritualistic sacrifice. Change your thinking. No. He wants an individual relationship with you. And Jesus is here to facilitate, to express, to inaugurate that new kind of experience. So those were the things that the disciples went out and they did and they taught. And they come back and they tell Jesus and they are, I mean, seriously and understandably exhausted. And Jesus says, let's go to a quiet place. But his plans are foiled to find a quiet place because some people in the crowd saw where they were headed, knew the likely outcome of their place, and decided to cut them off and go there ahead of them. 
So when Jesus gets there, they're there. Let's go to a desolate place. This is the only time in Scripture I can honestly tell you that Jesus failed. He didn't sin, but he failed. Let's go to a desolate place, and the people that were following him got there early and made it undesolate. Totally different experience than in Nazareth. Nazareth, he preaches and they take him. They don't like what he has to say and they take him to a cliff. They're about ready to throw him over the cliff. And you remember what happens. He sort of filters out among the crowd. There they're trying to, you know, cast him off. Here they're trying to pin him down. Wait, we want to hear what you have to say. Whatever you're teaching, we want to hear more. The disciples have so fairly and accurately represented the ministry of Jesus and the message that when they see the subject of the disciples' message, they say, let's go, and they all go, and they run. Now listen, this is my job to kind of figure this stuff out, but run is not a big word in the Bible. Nobody runs in the Bible except when they're after Jesus. There's five or six times in the Gospel of Mark when people, they know Jesus is over there and they run to meet him. Only time that you see the word or hear the word run is when the people who want to see Jesus know where he's at and they go to him. They want to be there first. It kind of raises the issue, doesn't it? Like, what about me? Would I run to Jesus? The typical American Christian at this point would say, no, not really. I kind of got my life squared around. I'm okay. When I get toward the grave, then I'm going to run to Jesus. When I get so I really need him to sort of help me cross that last part, I'll run, I'll get there. But until then, I'm on my own, happily. Kind of reminds me of St. Augustine, the fourth century saint that was living a life of debauchery, raunch, perversity. He'd been studying the Bible and he knew he had to give his life to Christ. He knew he had to convert, but he was having too much fun with his sin. You remember what his famous statement was? Lord, convert me but not yet. I wonder if you'd run or if I'd run if Jesus were here. And so Jesus teaches. People are enthralled. His message never wavered. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Change your mind and believe what I'm talking about. And they run into a problem. They're there till it's late in the day. Now, when Sam and I, we go to these, these places. We go to this, this exact same place. There's a church on it now. But if you sort of take all the buildings away, you can imagine how it's near the lake. Um, you can see a you know, massive landscape where people could have um, sat and listened to Jesus. 
you can actually picture it in your mind. And once you see that, you can't unsee it. Traveling to Israel will do that for you. It will change the way you think about Scripture and these whole stories. But they run into a problem. These people are getting hungry. They're human. They're getting hungry. And the disciples see it and Jesus see it. And they both have different solutions. And here we get into one of the most unique things that we find in Scripture. Is that there is a common situation in the New Testament. And this is one of them. The people are hungry. The disciples have a solution. And it's not a bad solution. Send them away. Go to... That's, that's a pretty good solution. Let everyone find food on their own. Send them away. And Jesus' solution is, no. You give them something. Now, just think about this for a moment. This is our life in a nutshell. We are living our life and we come across a situation, a problem that has to be resolved, a situation that needs to be, you know, addressed. And we have one solution. It is what is most expedient and efficient and effective. And then God has his way of suggesting, or in this case, ordering something else. If that doesn't describe the day-to-day life of a disciple, I don't know what does. You live your life, you think you've got your understanding, and many times you're surprised, but what actually God has taken your ideas and said, oh, isn't that special? No, we're going to do it this (laughs) way. And that's exactly what, what happens here. You give them something. And now I'm getting to the reason why this is the most Iconic, beautiful, emblematic miracle of them all. You remember the first of this message, I told you that that there was a reason why this message was so well-loved, well-known, well-regarded, and contained five times in the Gospels. Because it gives us, without a doubt, an operating understanding of how God works in our lives. The disciples say, send them away. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Bring what you have and I'll make it enough. You contribute the little, two little scrawny fish and five, you know, Stale rolls, whatever you do, you just do what you can do. And I will do what I will do. If you're looking for a summary of the way of God's ways with humanity, that's it. There's no other message in the scripture other than, of course, the atonement of of our sins. But when you look at. God's ways with men and women in the Bible, you just have this idea. We do what we will, and then God does what he will. When Sam and I take people around the Sea of Galilee, for example, 
We'll stop at one place called Capernaum, which is the hometown of Jesus. And we'll go in, not Nazareth, that's where he was raised. He didn't go back. To, after that bad sermon experience, he didn't go back. He went to Capernaum, opened up shop there. And here's what happened at Capernaum. He goes, you know the story, he goes and he sees a man in the, in the synagogue with a withered hand. And he says, come up here. And the man, who was basically shouldn't have been there anyway because he was um, impure and, and diseased or handicapped, and they didn't do that in the ancient world. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And as the man was stretching it out, it became healed. He didn't say, poof, you're done. Or he didn't say, I can't do this, go see a doctor. He said, as you do what you do, I'll do what I do. And the man stretched out his hand and it was healed. When, um, then we'll go to another place where um, John, uh, the Gospel of John records that Jesus had his first breakfast. All right, we know about the Last Supper, but when we go there, I'll teach you about the first breakfast in John 21 where, where the disciples are fishing on the lake and they catch nothing. And Jesus is on the shore cooking fish. And Jesus yells out, hey, did you catch anything? And, and they said, no, we didn't. They don't even know who he is. And he says, throw your nets on the other side. And they do, and they had this huge catch of fish, and they haul it in, and they bring it forward. And as they bring it forward, they see it's Jesus. And Jesus got a few fish on the grill, but... There's 257 of them in the net. And they say, uh, Jesus says to Peter, bring some of the fish you have caught. And that blows my mind because they've got to eat. They've caught nothing. Everything that they have, they have worked for to the extent that they have thrown their net over. They did what they would do, but God did what he would do. Are you with me? Over and over and over again, you see it. Let me close by giving you this idea, way to remember it. And I discovered this when I was doing this research on the book of Ruth uh, for the ordinary ways of God. I couldn't understand why the book of Ruth was there in the Old Testament. If you know your Bible, you know that the book of Ruth is 85 verses long, four small, uh, small short chapters. And it's sandwiched in some of the, be, between some of the greatest power books of the Old Testament. You know, the Genesis and, and Deuteronomy and all the, and then Judges and First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all that hits right there in the middle of that is this little tiny book about ordinary people living their lives, making mistakes, making decisions, exercising choices, doing their thing, if you will. And yet God is in every chapter of that small book 
and he's causing extraordinary things to happen in ordinary people's lives. You know, there's no miracle in the book of Ruth. God never speaks in the book of Ruth. It's just ordinary people who otherwise would have been nameless. But all they did was live their lives in faithfulness and what they imagined was obedience to this God of Israel. And God used them in extraordinary ways. Let me, in shorthand, let me tell you what I think it means, a way of remembering it. Here's a summary of everything I wanted to say today. God says to you and me in our life, you make it happen, I'll make it holy. It's just as simple as that. You make it happen, I'll make it whole. You apply that to your marriage. You make your marriage happen through fidelity and love and forgiveness. And I'll turn that into the most sanctifying experience you'll ever have with another person. Your church here. You know, you got a huge mission field out there. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? How is this all going to come out? Let me just tell you, I was a church planter, built a large church. I was there for 31 years. If there was a motto that, that I would have put on my bumper sticker if I was smart enough then to know it as I know it now, it is God says, you make it happen, I'll make it holy. You do your best to follow God's lead in these things. Do your best to be obedient. Don't worry about the outcome. He's got it in hand and he will make it, he will make it holy. Father Greg, could I have three more minutes? Indeed. Okay. <laughs> of course, there's another way to do it. And that's to take it on yourself. And exclude God, like the, like the Nazareth people. Exclude God. Don't let him be a part of anything. Okay, maybe at the end I'll need you, but until then, I'm on my own. Fifteen years ago, when I was a rector of the church, this very successful businessman came and he said, I need to buy you coffee. So we went out for coffee. And here was his story. He had sold his business and he was buying another building and, he, and about f uh, five years earlier, he had bought the franchise on a business that took out the dents in cars after hailstorms. Okay, that was, he bought a whole, you know, DFW's worth of dent repair shops. And we went out and he was telling me the story and he said, I said, so why are we talking about this? He said, well, I did the research. I, did, I really did the research. I, I, and I watched weather patterns. And I knew that every two to three years, Dallas-Fort Worth gets hit by a hailstorm that, that could be a just sweet thing for me. And so I bought in just at the right time, knowing that there would be a hailstorm. And there wasn't, Father David. <laughs> 
it said that my research that every two to three years we get these 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 storms from the north that bring the hail and I was going to be rich and it hasn't happened and it's been five or six years out and I'm about to lose everything. I said, this is one of the most amazing stories I've, I've heard. What do you want me to do? <laughs> I said, and he waited and he said, wait a minute. Are you saying you want me to pray for hail? To, would you? <laughs> I said, no, I won't. I won't do that. But I will tell you, make God your partner. Just give the business over to him. You do your best at what you can do, and God will bless you in ways that you can't even imagine. I know you can imagine a financial way, but he could bless you in many other ways. In other words, what I might have said to him is, friend, you make it happen. God will make it holy. Make God your partner. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.